Romans chapter 1, verse 16 is our text for today. This is the sixth sermon in a series through the New Testament book of Romans. Today's message is 40 handwritten pages, and the title of today's sermon is Everybody Ought to Know. So please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. As I preach today, I want you to keep in mind that God loves you. That is so important for you to remember. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Pray with me. Lord, you were not ashamed of us, but you publicly went to the cross and took our sins there with you. Lord, may we never be ashamed of you. Lord, in the final day when we stand before you, may you own us, Lord. Lord, may we, as we live out the rest of our days here on earth, never blush to speak your name. But Lord, may we be bold because of the power of the gospel. It is in the name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. So today, our outline is the gospel as it relates to embarrassment, energy, everybody, and election. The sermon today is about the gospel and we're going to look at four aspects of the gospel from Romans 1.16. So, to give you a little bit of context, we have now completed the introduction to the book of Romans, which is chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. In it, we meet the author, the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church at Rome, to people that he has never met in about the year A.D. 57. His purpose in writing is to clear up some confusion between Jews and Gentiles. But before he gets to that main objective, he establishes his credibility by spelling out the gospel in great detail. And when I say great detail, I mean great detail. He does it for eight chapters, chapters 1 through 8. And he tells the church at Rome uh, that he has been set apart uh, to be an apostle for the gospel of God and that this gospel of God is concerning his son, Jesus. And then he goes on to tell them that he really wants to be with them in person, but up to this point he has been hindered. And so his main reason for wanting to be with them is spelled out in the verse right next to our verse, chapter 1, verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And so that brings us to the conclusion of our introduction to the book of Romans. Now we move into the main body of the book of Romans with our passage today, which is chapter 1, verse 16. Now, the smart guys tell us that in order to understand the book of Romans, you have to get chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 correct. And I think I agree with them. Because in many ways, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 is an abbreviated version of the entire book. Time is not going to allow us today to go into both verses. Today, we're going to isolate verse 16, look at it alone. And then the next time that we were together, Lord willing, we will look at verses 16 and 17 together and see how the one blends into the other and how the one plays off of the other. Now, all Scripture 
is to be handled carefully. But I would submit to you this morning that Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, uh, really requires special care. Verse 16 is about the gospel, although ironically, it does not tell us what the gospel is. And so before we get into the actual exposition of the verse today, I just want to do a little brief excursus and tell you what the gospel is. And I think it's kind of comical that the gospel would be an excursus. It's never an excursus. It's always the main point. But I think I need to tell you what the gospel is before we talk about the gospel. Here's the gospel, the good news concerning God's Son. First of all, you need to know that God is holy and that we are not, and therefore we are in trouble. We have bad hearts, that is a propensity towards sin, and we have bad records, which means we have done bad things. As a result, we are enemies of God, and his wrath justifiably rests upon us because of our sin and our selfishness. And we cannot do anything in and of ourselves to repair that relationship by doing good works or giving money or crying or, or penance or anything. There's nothing we can do to get into God, God's good graces. We can't work our way into salvation. We cannot by ourselves remove his anger. We are sinners. We are deserving of hell. We are bound for hell. And there's absolutely nothing that we in and of ourselves can do about it. Yet, inexplicably, mysteriously, God chose to do something for us which we could not do for ourselves. That is that in love, remember at the outset of the sermon I told you to remember that God loves you, that in love God sent his son Jesus to come from heaven to earth to save us. Now what does that even mean? Well, there is one God who exist in three persons. There are not three gods, there is one God, and that one God exists in three persons. First person of the Trinity is God the Father. The second person of the Trinity is Jesus Christ, his Son. The third person of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. God the Father sent God the Son, God sent Jesus to earth for us, and he did it in love. And Jesus came in order to save us, and here's how he did it. First of all, he lived a perfect life for us, and this is vital information. Uh, The reason it's necessary to know this is because that the 33-year perfect life of Jesus gets credited to us when we accept him as our Savior. See, when you accept Jesus as your Savior, you are, of course, accepting him. You're not accepting a set of beliefs. You're accepting a person. You're being joined to a person. But with that person comes a record, a perfect record of his life, which is put on my account or my record. In the gospel, Jesus offers you his perfect life. And that's good. And the reason that that's good is because God requires perfection, The Bible says that if anybody would keep the whole law, you'd just break it in one point, he's guilty of all. God is requiring perfection. I can't offer it to him by myself. You can't get into heaven unless you have a perfect record, or as the book of Romans says, a perfect righteousness, and you cannot earn that on your own. But Jesus did something other than living a perfect life for us, and that is he paid our debt. You see, we all owe a debt to God because of sin. 
Um, there, sin is the bad stuff we do. There is a price for sin. The Bible tells us what that price is. It is death. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall surely die. We owe God a debt because of our sin. And God is holy. He can't look the other way. He can't sweep it under the rug. He's got to do something with that sin which we've committed. He has to punish that sin with death. The price of sin is death. Now, you can either keep your sin and be punished for it yourself throughout eternity in hell, which is eternal death, or Jesus paid for your sin with his death on the cross. The gospel says that Christ died for our sins. And so when he died on the cross for our sins, the wrath of God, which was justifiably put up on us because we ourselves committed the sin, it was transferred over to him. Uh, Dan, if you could assist me for just a moment. So let's say that this Bible right here is my sin, is a record of my sin, and let's say that my right hand is me. My sin is upon me because I have committed these sins. Uh, let's say that this hymnal here is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's everything righteous that he ever did. And let's say my left hand represents Jesus. So Jesus has righteousness. I have sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him that is in Jesus we might have the righteousness of God. And let's say for purposes of this illustration that Dan is God. What God did at the cross, as it says in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. This is us. This is our sin. We've said to God, I don't want your rules. We've turned everyone to his own way. But it says that the Lord, that is God the Father, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so now Jesus, when he's on the cross, he has my sin, and God who is holy who must punish sin, puts Christ to death upon the cross. But that's only half of it. When we accept Jesus as our Savior, the righteousness of Christ is placed upon us. So there's a, there's a swap, you see. He, he, we messed up and he took the blame. Uh, and, and, and what a glorious truth it is that he lived a perfect life and we get the credit. That is the doctrine of substitution. Uh, that is the gospel. That is the gospel. He gets our sin and pays for it in full with his death upon the cross. But the good news doesn't stop with Jesus in a tomb. Uh, he didn't stay dead. He comes back to life. That's known as the resurrection. He comes back to life, and then he goes to heaven. And when he gets to heaven, he is enthroned as the king of heaven. And even right now today, March 12th, 2023, Jesus is living, he is alive, he is in heaven, and he lives to save you or to give you spiritual life. So you see, the gospel says that Jesus, by his death, took your sins away, and Jesus, by his perfect life, gives you perfection, or as the book of Romans says, he gives you a perfect righteousness. Now I ask you, do you understand the gospel? Do you believe the gospel? Do you love the gospel? And are you in a right relationship with God through the gospel? 
Are you saved? Do you know God personally through Jesus? You see, it's not just a matter of understanding these facts, nor is it even a matter of agreeing with them that they are true. But what you must do in order to be saved is you must trust in Jesus. You must call upon him to save you in order to be saved. And I'm going to touch on this a little bit later in the sermon, but I do want to tell you right now that you cannot be saved unless you are lost. Jesus did not come to save the righteous, but he came to save sinners. It is not the well that go to the doctor, it is the sick. So you have to understand that you are a sinner, and then you must trust in or believe Jesus in order to be saved. So that is the gospel, and that is what the sermon is about. Uh, That is the message that Paul was eager to preach in Rome, but since Paul couldn't get to Rome, he writes them a letter in which he explains many things about the gospel, and we're going to look at four of them today from Romans 1.16. He spells out four aspects of the gospel, and number one is this, the gospel as it relates to embarrassment. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, I do realize that shame and embarrassment are nuanced synonyms. They do not have identical meanings, but for purposes of an alliterated sermon outline, we're going to stick with that E word, embarrassment, and I think you know what we're talking about. Now, in a literary sense, what he is doing is he is stating something positive by turning it upside down and making it a negative. It would be like this. I come over to your house to eat. Uh, You serve me a wonderful meal. You serve me dessert. And then you say, Ed, would you like more dessert? And my answer is going to be, I wouldn't say no. Now, what am I saying when I say I wouldn't say no? I'm saying yeah, are you kidding me? Yes, go get it now. Bring, bring me some figgy pudding. Yes, I wouldn't say no. Well, well, when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, what he really means is, I am very proud to preach the gospel, but by using the negative angle, I think he awakens in the mind the sad possibility of embarrassment. And I want you to notice, first of all, that this is personal, for it says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. He doesn't tell them that they shouldn't be ashamed, although they shouldn't be ashamed. And, and, and he makes it very personal. I am not ashamed, which begs the question, how in the world would one even ever imagine that the greatest Christian that ever lived, the Apostle Paul, be ashamed of the gospel? I mean, that is unthinkable. Is, is there... Is there even any reason to clarify this? I mean, it almost goes without saying, if you know what I mean. What if I were to stand in front of you this morning and I were to say, brothers and sisters of North Shore Baptist Church, I just wanted to let you know that I have decided not to go to dental school. Kind of goes without saying. We didn't know you were thinking about it. I wasn't thinking about it. I just wanted to let you know I'm not going. Sort of like Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, were you ever considering being ashamed of the gospel? Was Paul ever tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? You see, Paul was a human being. 
And I'm going to argue that all Christians face the temptation to some extent, some more than others. But I think everybody knows what we're talking about here. Peter clearly was tempted to be ashamed of the gospel, and he failed three times before the rooster crowed. I certainly can identify with this temptation. In fact, I will tell you that every time that I contemplate having an evangelistic conversation with someone, every time I am contemplating in my mind whether or not I should engage and to what degree I should engage. I mean, me, of myself, I'm not a shy guy. I mean, look at this tie. Look at this. I am not a shy guy. I like polka music, and I'm not ashamed to tell anybody. I, I, I am not shy by nature. But when the opportunity comes to share the gospel, and the conversation is going on in my mind whether I should engage this person, I suddenly become shy and a little bit apprehensive a bit sheepish, and and I tiptoe lightly into the approach. And sometimes, I'm even sad to say, depending on who it is that I'm sharing with, I will somewhat modify the content based upon my estimation of whether or not the person will hear it. I, I sort of take the edge off a little bit, if you know what I'm saying. Timidity steps in when I start to evangelize. And so maybe Paul tells the Roman Christians of his personal confidence, not to brag or to boast in himself, but maybe he wants to set an example for them because maybe he knew that Rome was a place where people were filled with pride and power and prominence and the concept of a crucified Jewish Savior conveyed nothing but weakness and defeat. I mean, can you relate Can you relate? In places where people are rich and influential and highly educated and worldly and arrogant, do you not run the risk of being a little bit ashamed or intimidated? Whereas I would say, and I'm just being honest with you, when I am speaking amongst the weak or the poor or the uneducated, those who wield no influence, I'm a little bit bolder. Or maybe... Maybe if we were living in Rome in A.D. 57, there might be this intimidation factor that I'm talking about. Or or maybe the threat of persecution might have come into play in Paul's thinking, knowing that in Rome soon it was going to be a city where Christians were martyred. I mean, for crying out loud, Nero is soon to lose his mind, and then he will lose all restraint, and he will begin tossing Christians to the lions. We can relate to this, the fear that is associated with sharing the gospel. I mean, if the person with whom I'm sharing, Christ, has the power to make me less happy, then I am going to be less bold to talk with them. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, nobody's throwing me to the lions, but, but, but if there's a boss who can fire me or demote me, well, maybe I'm not going to speak as boldly. Or if it's a mother-in-law who can make every holiday a dread, maybe I'm going to back off a little bit. Or maybe if it's a neighbor or a friend who might gossip about me and not include me in the reindeer games, well, then maybe <clears throat> I might become silent about Jesus. There is a temptation to lighten up our witness 
in the name of self-preservation. We tell ourselves this lie, let me live to witness another day. But for today, the wise thing to do is not to push too hard, but just to move on maybe another time. I mean, by identifying as a Bible-believing, born-again Christian, in some settings, you are committing social suicide. And let me tell you one of the reasons why. You will be accused of being narrow. You'll be accused of being narrow. The exclusivity of Jesus Christ, who claims, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, is just unthinkable in a pluralistic society where all roads lead to God. A couple of weeks ago, when I was preparing my sermon from the previous section in Romans 1, 14 and 15, in the section where Paul says that he is a debtor, an obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. I was sitting in the Detroit airport while I was preparing that. Uh, Anna had gone that Saturday to do a ladies' conference, and so I flew up there with her. And as we're preparing to fly back on Saturday, I'm sitting there in the Detroit airport. I have four Bible commentaries set out. I have my Bible. I have my notebook. I don't have my computer because I don't own a computer. And I'm working on my sermon, and a man walks up and smiles. I smile back. He gets something to eat. He comes back. He sits down beside, close by, and he says, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm studying, studying the Bible. I'm preparing for a sermon that I'm delivering tomorrow. And he moves over and sits right in front of me, and he says, can we talk? And I'm thinking to myself, listen, pal, I'm preparing a sermon in which I am telling my people to tell others about Jesus. I don't have time to talk to you about Jesus right now. <clears throat> so I said, what's your background? And he tells me that he is a, a neurologist, so he's, he's very educated. He tells me that he has uh, just from many, many different strands um, of religion influences on his life, Jewish and Hindu and Muslim. He says, the thing I love about it is that all roads lead to God. And I said, well, um, Jesus claims that he is the only way. He said, I went to Catholic school. Uh, Jesus said, if you look under a rock, you will find God. And I said, pulled out my wallet, I said, here's my credit card. I said, you may run it to the limit if you can show me the verse where Jesus said, if you look under a rock, you can find God. It's not in there. He goes, I'm pretty sure it's in there somewhere. I said, it's not in there. Jesus claims exclusivity. I said, now, theoretically, he might be wrong, but he claimed to be the only way, and I believe he is the only way. He could not accept the fact that Christians believe there is only one way to heaven. You are deemed to be narrow when you preach the gospel. And and maybe Paul was, was writing to them, telling them that they that he's not ashamed of the gospel because he needed to inform them that he himself was at times deemed to be a fool or to be insane. Remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. 
For the word of the cross, you know what the word of the cross is, right? It's the gospel. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those that are perishing. And then in the next chapter, Paul says that the natural or the unsaved person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him. And remember when Paul was on trial before Festus, and Paul gives his defense, he gives the gospel, and in Acts 26, 24, Festus says to Paul, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Or as the King James says, thine much learning hath made thee mad. Now, I believe the gospel. In fact, I'm banking my eternity on it. I don't perceive myself to be a fool. I, I, I don't consider myself to be stupid. I mean, I know that I'm not a genius, but I, do, I don't consider myself to be stupid. And I don't categorize myself as crazy. We can just leave it there, okay? <laughs> crazy Eddie, his sermons are insane. <clears throat> no, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm eccentric, but I'm not nuts. But there will be those that say that we are stupid or fools or nuts. And the best way to protect ourselves and to keep our image good before others is just to keep our thoughts about Jesus private. Maybe you are shocked to know that your pastor is often tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. Well, friends, you should not be shocked to know that I have this temptation because in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says that there's no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, what I struggle with is what you struggle with. You are not special and neither am I. I am not exempt and the apostle Paul was not exempt. Why do you think it is that Jesus told his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed that he was hated and that they would be hated because of him? It's because they needed to know that they would be hated because of him and they needed to prepare ahead of time for the inevitable persecution. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21 if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and they did, they will also persecute me. If they kept my word, they will keep also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Why? Because they do not know him who sent me. Paul also understood that being a Christian meant that there was going to be persecution. Remember Paul? He's on his way to Damascus. He's blinded by the light. He goes into the city, and, and he's blind, and he's sitting there for three days, and God gets a man by the name of Ananias to come and pray for Paul. And Ananias is reluctant to go, and listen to what God says to Ananias in Acts chapter 9, verse 16. This is before Paul. Paul is still literally blind. And, and, and God says this to Ananias about Paul. 
For I shall show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Before he even got out of the gates, it was determined that he was going to be one who would suffer. And did Paul suffer? Oh, indeed, he did suffer. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 28, Paul writes, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes, lest one. Uh, less one. Uh, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Yes, Paul was told that he was going to suffer, and indeed, he did suffer. So Paul gets to the end of his life, and he's going to write one more letter, and he's going to write it to a timid young man, timid Timothy, who is in Ephesus. And he has to tell Timothy, explicitly, do not be ashamed. Chapter 1, verse 8 of 2 Timothy. Therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. You know what the testimony about our Lord is? It's the gospel, okay? Nor of me. Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. But here's the key. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. There's the contrast between being ashamed and sharing in, in suffering. And notice this, it's very important. Being not ashamed is equal to suffering. So, so when you are not ashamed, when you are bold, you will suffer. Therefore, being ashamed is a way to avoid suffering. Let me say that again. If you are ashamed, you can avoid suffering. If you are not ashamed, you will endure persecution. You will endure persecution. Now, I realize, ladies and gentlemen, that the potential for suffering that Timothy would have had in AD 67 in Ephesus was far greater than anything that we could experience in 2023 in the United States of America. But the concept is still the same. The heart of temptation is still the same to shrink away from the gospel. And it is simply this, self-preservation. It tempts every Christian to disown or to water down or to remain silent on the gospel. And Paul understands that Timothy is tempted to be ashamed. And that is why four verses later in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12, Paul ties in suffering with not being ashamed so that Timothy will understand. He tells them, which is why I suffer, what is why I suffer. In the previous verse, he says that I'm a preacher of the gospel, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. Once again, suffering and being ashamed are juxtaposed or set in opposition to one another. You know what I want? Here's what I want. I want to boldly tell everybody about the gospel because 
everybody ought to know. And you know what else I want? I want everybody to love me. And Jesus and Paul say, you can't have both. You're going to have to make a choice. 2 Timothy 3.12. Timid Timothy needs to know, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Paul understands the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. Now, I am not saying that Paul was ashamed of the gospel. In fact, I'm saying that he was not ashamed of the gospel, and my reasoning for that is that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel. But what I am saying is this. He understood the temptation, and maybe that's why he starts off the body of his letter to the Romans by saying that he is not ashamed of the gospel. And I think that in their initial reading of this, his boldness would be an encouragement to them. Not so that they could look at Paul and worship him and, and praise him. And, and I think that they were encouraged not because they would look at what he did and say, well, if Paul can do it, we can do it. And I, and I don't think that they were guilted into it as if to say, well, Paul is our example and, 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 and look how far short we fall and I guess we better step up our game. I don't think that that is what encouraged them at all. In fact, if I think if you just read on a little bit further in the text, you will discover why this would be an encouragement to them. And it had nothing to do with Paul's personal virtue or Paul's experience or Paul's faith at all. In fact, they are not in this text directed to look at Paul. But Paul does give them the reason why he himself is not ashamed and it has nothing whatsoever to do with Paul himself, which brings us to point number two, and that is the gospel as it relates to energy. Again, chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Now, once again, I realize that I might not have chosen the best word. I know that there is a difference between power and energy. But once again, I want to stick with the alliterated outline. So we're going to use the word energy, and you know what I'm talking about. What Paul is saying here is that there is an objective reason why I am not ashamed. And that is that there is nothing to be ashamed about because the gospel is the dynamite of God unto salvation. So when we think about our lives, there are certain things that we, apart from the gospel, that we are ashamed of and we are ashamed of for good reason. Let's take the New Orleans Saints, for example. I think they did win a Super Bowl, but by and large, over the course of their history, and we're going back to the 1960s, they have not been a good football team. And it got so bad in the 1980s that when the fans would show up at a Saints game, they would sit in the stands with a bag over their head. Why? because they were saying, I don't want the camera to come up here and find me because I am so ashamed of my team. Now, there's a way that, and, and you think you're a player, you're down on the field, you're doing the best that you can to win, and you look at your fans, and they're in the stands, and they have a bag on their head, right? There's a way that you can prevent them from wearing bags on their head. 
It's pretty simple. You know what it is? You just win. Just win, baby. That's it. You win and the bags come off. On the other hand, and I have been waiting for 41 years to use this illustration, there are other teams that have nothing to be ashamed of. For example, the Georgia Bulldogs, go dog Sikkim, who have won 33 out of their last 34 games and they have won back-to-back national championships. I am not ashamed right now. And the reason that I am not ashamed is because they are the most powerful team in America. And Paul is saying to these Roman Christians, there is a reason why I am not ashamed. You look up at the stands at me, uh, Paul says, I'm not wearing a bag over my head. And there's a reason I'm not wearing a bag over my head. And it's because my team is winning. You see, I think one of the reasons that we, and when I say we, I mean you and me, we are tempted to be ashamed, is because we have forgotten the power and the energy and the force and the strength of the gospel to save. Now, notice what it does not say. It does not say that the gospel is the power of God unto creation. Wow, some crazy power and energy going on in creation. When God speaks the universe into existence in six 24-hour days, he says, let there be, and everything comes into existence. And if you leave New York City and you go out somewhere and you find some actual nature and your jaw drops in, in, in the great majesty of the things that God has created, not Mother Nature, not evolution, not the Big Bang, but what God has done through his power, you are left to just look at creation, not praising creation, but to praise God and to say, how great thou art. But Paul in this text is not talking about the power of God in creation. And he's not talking about the power of God in judgment or damnation. And there is great power in judgment and damnation in that there is a hell which was created for the devil and his angels. And there is a place where God can confine you in eternal conscious punishment, writhing in pain with no way of escape. The wrath of God is excessively powerful. He, he, he demonstrated it briefly when he flooded the entire planet and he only saved eight people. The wrath of God demonstrates magnificent power. But Paul is not talking about God's power in judgment. He's talking about a power which is far more majestic than speaking the universe into existence or hydrating the entire planet. Paul is referring to the power by which a holy God who can have nothing with sin, who is of purer eyes than to behold evil, God who cannot lie, God who is absolutely pure in love, sacrifices his only son for his enemies. And then he raises his son from the dead so as to reconcile or bring together these two warring entities. This is the greatest power that the universe has ever known. 
that villains like you and me are cleansed and forgiven, but not just cleansed and forgiven, not just, not just the, 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 the slate washed clean, but brothers and sisters, we are adopted into his family and we are welcomed eternally into God's house. And we, while we live out our days on earth, are changed and transformed from those who used to hate God and used to hate his law now to those who love him. That's the greatest power that the universe has ever known. That is the power of which Paul speaks here. The greatest demonstration of power. The power of God to save sinners. Uh, Let me read out the remainder of 1 Corinthians 1.18. I only read a part of it before. Let me read out the remainder of it now. Again, for the word of the cross is folly or foolishness. The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And Paul is saying in Romans 1.16, I have objective reasons for not being ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think people with big muscles wear tight t-shirts. Like, why? Do, do they, is every store that they go into, they walk in and say, do you have an extra large? Sorry, sir. All we have, all we have is a medium. Well, I guess it'll do. Yeah. Now, the reason that they wear these tiny little t-shirts is because they are not ashamed. The reason they are not ashamed is because they possess a power and they want to make this power known by exposing their guns. And so I would say to you, the next time that you see some buff dude in a medium t-shirt, don't scoff. Don't say, oh, it's disgusting. No, look at that guy and be reminded that powerful people are not ashamed And people who possess a powerful gospel should not be ashamed. And evangelists who possess the knowledge of that powerful gospel should not be ashamed. And then after you have drawn that analogy in your mind and rejoiced in the power of the gospel, I want you to evangelize Captain Steroid and say, Sir, you have really big arms that you obviously want me to notice. Can we talk about that? And I want you to know I have a powerful gospel that you need to know about. I'm kidding, (laughs) but not really. See, the point is this. We become ashamed, as it were, carrying out the analogy, because we think that we as Christians have skinny, weak, flabby arms, and that we need to wear clothing which is too big in order to cover that up, when in reality, we possess the dynamite of God unto salvation. And if we were to look at the gospel and to study the facts and to remember the power it exerted in bringing even us to life, I think that much of our shyness would dissipate, maybe even totally evaporate. Uh, That's what Paul says here. He says, there's a reason for my boldness. It is because the gospel has H-bomb, H-bomb 
energy. And the closer we draw to Christ, the more we are going to be able to see the gospel clearly and be bold in the proclamation of it. Which brings us to point number three, the gospel as it relates to everybody. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, I'm not going to uh, comment at this time at length on the word believes. I'm going to deal with that more when we look at verses 16 and 17 together. But for now, just let me quickly say that the appropriation and application of the gospel is not by works, but it is by faith. Um, Again, to believe is not just to agree with historical facts. Even the devil believes that. Um, it, It is to trust him to save you. And let me reiterate what I said at the outset of the sermon, and that is that you cannot trust him until you realize that you are lost. You have to feel your need for him. You have to come to grips and fall under conviction by the Holy Spirit because only the lost can be saved. And so if you've never come under conviction about your lost condition, you've never been saved. The only people Jesus saves are the lost. But if God has revealed to you your ungodly, helpless, lost state, then the only one that can help you is Jesus. And I am here today to tell you he really can help you. And anybody who believes in him will be saved. You trust in him You believe in him. Now, I'm going to talk more in the next sermon, Lord willing, about uh, that word faith. But for now, the point is that the gospel is for everyone who believes. Now, let me be clear. I think you know this, but I want to state it. I am a Calvinist. I believe in predestination. I believe in election. I know that only the elect are going to believe. In other words, only those whom God has chosen before will be grant before time will be granted the gift of life. Acts thirteen forty eight. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Uh, those who believe are believing because God Himself gave them faith. Ephesians two eight and nine. For grace you've been saved through faith. It's not yourselves. It's the gift of God. You can't believe unless the gift of faith is given to you. But let's just say for the sake of argument that I'm wrong. Let's say that the Calvinists are wrong. It still doesn't change Paul's point here. The Calvinist and the Arminian are preaching this text the same way, and that is that anyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ will be saved. Anyone who believes in the gospel will be saved. Greek, barbarian, wise, unwise, Jew, Gentile, God doesn't turn anyone away who comes to him through Jesus. And so today, if you are not saved, or if there's even any uncertainty in your mind as to whether or not you are converted, two things I want to tell you. The first thing I want to tell you is that prior to this service, there was a group of people who met in one of our Sunday school rooms, and they prayed for you today. They prayed that today would be the day that you would come to life and that you would be saved. The second thing I want to tell you is that today, and I mean actually today, you can be saved if you will believe the gospel that I described at the outset of the sermon. And you say, 
dude, that was like an hour ago. Like, I forgot, like, what did you even say? Doesn't matter if you remember. Do you know that you are lost? Do you know that you're an enemy of God, that you are unsaved? Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that God demonstrated his love by giving Jesus to die for you? Do you know that Jesus was raised to life and that he lives today, right now, to save you? If you know that, then just call upon God and say, Jesus, save me. It is that simple. The gospel is for everyone who believes, and that includes you. So believe right now and be saved. Which brings us to our final point, and that is the gospel as it relates to election. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Here is the election part, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Final phrase is foretelling what Paul is going to write about later in chapters 9 through 11, and especially in chapter 11. But for now, let's remember the ethnic makeup of the Roman church. Most of the members of that church in Rome were Gentiles, and they were not Jews. And Paul, I believe, is writing this phrase to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile for the Gentiles who may have become proud that they held a majority in the church. And I think my guess is a pretty good guess based upon what Paul will write in chapter 11, verse 18, to the Gentile Christians when he says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Well, who are the branches? Uh, uh, well, it is, it is the Gentiles that are being addressed here, and he's speaking about how they are arrogant about how they have more or less replaced the Jews. And notice what he says here, chapter uh, uh, 11, verse 18, 11, 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root that's the Jews, but the root that supports you. Romans 1.16 is telling the Gentiles that the Jews were the first to receive the gospel. Now, the Jews were the first to receive the gospel, certainly in the ministry of Christ, because you remember he repeatedly said, I am sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the Jews are the first to receive the gospel in um in the book of Acts, because remember, even in the Great Commission, Jesus says you will go first to Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. And you remember, even in Paul's strategy of sharing the gospel, what would he do? Every town he would go into, first place he would go would be to the synagogue. He would read the law and preach Christ from the law to the Jews. But it goes back even further than that, because remember what we studied several weeks ago in Romans chapter 1 and verse 2, that it, this gospel goes back all the way into the Old Testament. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, what I'm trying to point out here is that the Jews have had the gospel since Abraham, who was the first Jew. So, even though it is now for everyone, Jew and Gentile, they needed to know that the unfolding of redemptive history had the gospel going to the Jew first 
and then to the Greek or then to the Gentile. And you say, so what? What difference does that make? Well, first of all, it demonstrates the sovereignty of God to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with whom he wants. It's his decision. And if you read the Bible, okay, remember how much of the Bible is the Old Testament? What is it? 77.42%. In 77.42% of the Bible plus, the gospel is only going to Jews with very few exceptions. I mean, you do have Rahab the harlot, you have Ruth, you have Naaman, you have the Ninevites, you have the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15 that Jesus talked to, but there aren't too many more examples of Gentiles getting the gospel. And and the only ones that are receiving the gospel, I'm not even talking about believing it, the only ones that are receiving the gospel for over 77.42% of the Bible are Jews. So, on the one hand, rejoice that the gospel is now C point number three for everybody, but also know that in God's sovereign choice, the reasons which the God has, has done this, and we don't know them, it's just reasons that are only known to him, he set his love on Israel alone, A-L-O-N-E, Amos chapter 3, verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Not the Egyptians, not the Assyrians, not the Babylonians, not the Philistines, not the Greeks, not the Romans, but only the Jews. And you say, well, where does that bring us today? Well, today, Israel, that is the nation of Israel, they are no longer the chosen people of God. His chosen people now are both Jews and Gentiles. They are the church. It is the elect But God wants the church at Rome to know that for a very long time, in sovereign election, God chose Israel to the Jew first. So here's your one point of application for this week. I want you to take some time, and I want you to meditate on the gospel. I want you to do it in prayer. I want you to think about it. I want you to read scriptures about the gospel. I want you to think about this powerful gospel, maybe even through journaling. I want you to get the gospel into your head. I want you to think about it as it is unveiled in scripture. I want you to think about the gospel in church history. I want you to think about the gospel as it has been displayed in the lives of other people. I mean, there are are some of you that when I have my doubts All I do is I just look at you and I say, there is no explanation as to why they are now different other than the fact that the gospel is real. Look at the gospel in other people. Look at the gospel in your own life. Look at the gospel from every angle possible. And as you do, sort of build up in your heart, asking the question, how powerful is this? How powerful is this? Once this has marinated in your mind and in your heart, I want you to take that study of the gospel this week, and I want you to go out in an unashamed way and intentionally, boldly witness to someone this week whom you know to be unsaved. God loves you. God loves other sinners. So I want you to be aware 
okay? I want you to put on that medium t-shirt, and I want those muscles to be bulging, spiritually speaking, and then I want you to go out and say, I'm not ashamed of this. I've got something powerful here, not in arrogance, in meekness, but I want you to go with confidence and take that boldness, take that gospel, not being ashamed of the gospel. All right. I hope you know that God loves you. Here we go. Romans, 16 verses down, 417 to go. We're getting there. We're getting there. Let's pray. Lord, we left to ourselves are timid and meek and weak and fearful. We don't want to be that way. So impress the glories of Calvary upon us and cause us, Lord, to take this message to those who are perishing. Help us to do it, Lord, not only with boldness but with joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.